Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Tom, good morning. I was out in the garden this morning before I came in and uh, that shower of rain was so welcome. I could smell the earth. I could actually smell the earth, you know. It drank it yeah. down. It drank it down. Yes. Yeah. The grass is much greener this morning. <laughs> it's no harm. We've had yeah. a wonderful spell of dry weather. Of course, we'll miss it when it's gone, but, uh, you know, we're more, we're more used to showers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Tom, how are you this morning? What's on this week? I, I'm, uh, well, I'm well, and as, as it happens, it's about green grass I'm talking as well this week. Um, we have... a. Camogie team playing in an All-Ireland final on Sunday. We do indeed. And, uh, yes, and this is a very important game. It's a game that has a huge following in County Galway. Uh, it's a derivative, of course, of the game of hurling. And we know, like, back into mythology, Cucullin and all of that, that the game of hurling has been played for centuries, really, in this country. But not by women, Uh now, curiously, it, it, the beginning of the last century is when it began to be kind of organized and it evolved into the game that it is today. There were two very prominent uh, Irish language enthusiasts, uh, cultural nationalists, if you like, Marni Kineja and Kaut Nihonaka. <clears throat> and they are the two ladies who are, you know, it, they, they're the ones that created the sport, really. One of their brothers uh, was the person who drew up the rules, and that was only in 1903. Right. And uh, but the game grew very quickly, and and it was played very quickly in Galway. I have a photograph of a team from UCG playing a team from UC Cork uh, okay. in the early 1900s, and how they could play is beyond me. The women were wearing what I could only describe as very heavy-looking skirts down <laughs> to their ankles. Oh, Lord. Uh, yeah. They all had blouses, but they wore ties as well. And, oh, my uh, goodness, right. And many of them wore hats. So <laughs> uh, when you look at them today, oh. there must be absolute freedom and liberation compared exactly. to that. Yeah. But it's anyway, it, the games were, the rules were drawn up in 1903. The... Uh, Pitches for the women were a bit shorter. There were 12-a-side teams. The uh, men played with a common, and the women played with a shorter version of that. So they called it a com-og. Right. And from that came the name <laughs> comogiucht, and from that came well anglicized into komogi. Well and, said. Uh, okay. Yeah. And yeah. it was... Uh, <clears throat> It, Galway being always a stronghold, I suppose, if you like, of the game of hurling, it was inevitable that a lot of women would want to play the game here. And uh, it grew very quickly in popularity here. The first ever All-Ireland final uh, in Camogie was actually played in the sports ground in 1932. 
uh, where a Dublin team beat Galway, but there were about a thousand spectators there. Uh, this was the only All-Ireland ever played outside of Dublin, and it's, uh, but it, it teed the whole thing up. Galway were beaten the following year as well in the final by Dublin, and uh, in terms of competition, I suppose our senior ladies, uh, they were beaten in quite a number of finals until 1996, when finally they beat Cork by a very good score, actually. It was a very close game. But that gave an enormous boost to the game in the county. And it's very strong here. Uh, there are 34 clubs, uh, so there must be thousands of girls and women playing the game throughout the county. And it's very exciting. It's actually, I suppose, being macho males, you know, we might have always thought, oh, sure, what's the women? They can hardly hit the ball or anything. Oh dear! But in fact, they're just as good. Um, that's long gone. We are still, we are seeing a revolution in women's sports at the moment. Uh, the yeah. last year or so, outstanding performances by women. Really, you know, from the Olympics, you know, you take every sport, virtually every sport, women are triumphing, and it's a total revolution. You know, and I think it men is, yeah. may have had the feeling, Ash, the women they, they wouldn't be at it. They're brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, they are. They're, they're just as skilled. They're just as competitive. Well, of it is quite physical. Yes. Uh, there's no pussyfooting around out on a commodity pitch at all anymore. Mm. Uh, so it's like now, finally, since the, the 1996 breakthrough, uh, Galway has won quite a number of uh, finals at different levels as well. Uh, not just at senior level, but at junior and intermediate level, and also at club level. Uh, one of the most uh, long playing clubs in the country is UCG or NUIG, as it is now. Uh, like they won, there's, there's an intervarsity trophy called the Ashburn Cup, and um, college have won many times. They won one of the very first ever competitions. I remember going to an Ashburn final in uh, the stadium when I was in college, and I had a very patronizing, I, I mean, I have to hold my hands up now and apologize for it because I'm sure my behavior on the sideline was dreadful, actually. Oh. <laughs> so it's just really to kind of, it doesn't yeah. happen that often, but to honor the occasion of Sunday coming up, mm. Galway versus Cork, I thought, so it's a very old team that I have this week. Uh, an old Galway team and it's from 1933 and there are some legends of the game on the Galway team and uh, so it's just a kind of way of saying come on Galway next Sunday we're all behind you and you uh, bet, you bet. let's bring the cup mm. back across the channel no, but it's funny how we were brought up Tom because women did not participate in team sports really I'm not aware but they might have played a bit of tennis or yeah. You know, certainly they did play hockey, but you never really saw it. You were never aware of it. And it never got coverage on the sports results or the news or anything like that. It was something that happened if certain women wanted to do it. But I mean, now we can only welcome, indeed, my own children, you know, how good they are at following sport, enjoying sport. And I think it's it's just wonderful, you know, obviously it's it is. wonderful, but I mean, it's good for us as well to realize that, you know, women are just as good as men in every way, in every way. So I love what you're yeah. doing, Tom. I love that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's, uh, well, why not? It's, uh, yeah. 
the ladies are just as important as the men. The one thing you, you, you're not mentioning Dublin in the finals. I think Dublin, this great citadel of sport dominance, has been won and once and for all knocked on the head. And we're no longer seeing Dublin in the finals of every blinking GAA game and every possible game that we've been watching for years. And uh, I'm sure they don't mind giving the rest of the country a chance is probably what they would say. But in fact, what has happened is the rest of the country has beaten Dublin once and for all. And I'm very pleased when I don't see Dublin in the final. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not very democratic. I have a soft spot for Cork, but I will be definitely voting for Galway. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, listen, Tom, I am once and for all finally finishing the the Galway line. You'll be relieved to hear. And really, I just thought I I would do something which I've done before. I've just added a few more uh, pointers to it. The sinking, the final demise of the Galway line really went down with the P.S. Connacht, this magnificent boat that must have cost a fortune and must have broke uh, John Oriel Lever once and for all to provide this magnificent, magnificent boat. It was so big, the only bigger uh, ship, iron hull ship in the 1860s was the Ishmael Kingdom Brunel's uh, ship, which was just slightly bigger than the P.S. Connor to show you the size and the interest from engineers and boat builders that there was in the Galway line. And this boat, of course, was once was to, you know, save its fortunes. But of course, amazingly, almost on its um, first run coming out of Boston, about 100 miles out of Boston on October the 8th, 1860, um, there was a storm. Amazingly, it ran a serious leak in its engine room. Water poured in. It started up its auxiliary engine to drive the pedal wheels. The spark called, caused a fire, and the fire spread rapidly as the daylight began to disappear. Night was falling, and this desperate position for its uh, crew and its, and its passengers, as you know, there was no, there was no possible escape. Uh, There were lifeboats and uh, they were put out, but there were only room for just a few passengers. It it would take another quarter of a century before the Titanic sank, before people began to realize that, you know, every liner must have sufficient space in its lifeboats after that. But at this time, there was no, none of that was given. No safety at sea really was given any thought at all. So the people actually were confronted with either uh, staying on board and burning to death or drowning in in the ocean. And as night fell, the flames grew bigger and bigger. The uh, passengers moved up to the top of the deck, keeping away from the flames. I don't know what they were thinking of. So they did launch some of the lifeboats, but they were tossed back against the uh, side of the ship. There wasn't enough. um, They hadn't properly done the dropping of lifeboats into the water. They banged and banged on their way down. They had to come back. So uh, there was despair. Until, amazingly, attracted by the light, came this little brig, a two-masted brig, coming towards Boston from Marseille, uh, the Mini Schiffer, with its wonderful captain, Captain John Wilson, 
who saw the flames in the distance and came over to see what he could do. And of course, he came just in the nick of time. And yeah. he couldn't draw alongside because the flames were so high. So he launched his own lifeboats. And with wonderful dexterity and seamanship, his lifeboats went over. The passengers from the Connacht jumped on board his lifeboats, brought them back to the brig, which was dis some distance away, back with the lifeboats go again, until in fact every one of the passengers was brought on his tiny little ship, which was filled, by the way, with fruit and wine. And he was such a decent man, he distributed the fruit and the wine among the much relieved passengers who must yes. have, their lives were saved. Their lives were saved. So he brings them into Boston the next day. And uh, I've got a lovely quote from the New York Times to takes up the story. And uh, um, the rescue boat, yeah. And her arrival, says the New York Times, was greeted by shouts and applause from the crowds of people who had assembled along the wharf and filled all available positions upon neighboring vessels to cheer the survivors of the Connacht. As the brig, now it gets artistic here, the, the description, as the brig rubbed gently against the piers, hearty and long-continued cheers went up in token of the warm sympathy and hearty congratulations from the crowd. The roughly clad, unwashed, but comparatively joyful-looking passengers feebly acknowledged the kindly sentiments. Well, indeed, they did. And uh, they were well looked after. And it took a few days. In fact, another boat came across the wreck, watched it sinking and picked up a lot of the suitcases which were brought into uh, Boston as well. And some passengers actually got their suitcases back, although their clothes were wet. Just a brief word then on uh, Captain Wilson. Of course, everybody was absolutely delighted. I mean, this was an extraordinary heroic saving that he did and it that was, he yeah. did. It really was great. So <laughs> the Galway um, um, members of the Galway line and the various shareholders said, we've got to reward this man. So they contacted Tiffany's in New York and they arranged for this wonderful set of silver service to be engraved suitably acknowledging his great bravery. And they went further. They must have had a little extra money. They contacted a very well-known maritime artist, Sir Oswald Beerley, And he did a dramatic painting of the rescue uh, by uh, Captain Wilson of the passengers from the Connaught. And all of that was to be given to him. But alas, you know, world events took over. American Civil War broke out. Wilson felt he had to really take the side of the Confederates, which he did. He tried to, uh, when the Union Army and the Union government had closed off the ports uh, in the southern states, uh, a lot of money was to be had if you ran through that closure, if you risked your ship and your life, probably bringing in supplies to those various ports down along the southern states. You made a lot of money. Wilson got into that business. And finally, when the Civil War was over, um, Lincoln's government gave a, a, an armistice to all those who participated against the Union Army. But of course, with all of these things, there are various strings attached to it, with the exception of people who took part in uh, running through the blockades 
uh, guarding the southern ports. So Wilson not only never got his painting, his silverware was impounded by the Union government, and he fades out of history rather sadly. But Tom, I, I'm glad I've finished it because I've been reading more and more about where everybody was going. Now, don't forget there were hundreds of thousands of people streaming from Europe, streaming towards America. And there's a famous quote, you probably know it yourself, William Halley, uh, on St. Patrick's Day to the good Irish people of Toronto in March 17, 1860, the same year that the Connacht was lost. He called the Irish in his speech the Ishmaelites, he pronounced it Ishmaelites of the earth, wanderers everywhere, discovered quite at home under the burning sun of the tropics, are happy in the frozen regions of the world. So that was a rather mistaken statement. Yes, there were wanderers throughout the world as it happened. I mean, remember, two, well over two million fled Ireland between the years of 1845 to 1852 during the Great Famine. So yeah. immigration, in fact, was not a happy solution, really. Um, oh, no. most, most Irish people went to Britain, which was nearby. Um, but unfortunately, the hundreds of thousands and millions who went to Britain during this time, unlike going to America, there was no passenger lists kept on the boats between Ireland and Britain. So people just disappeared, disappeared into the slums of Liverpool, Dumbarton, Dundee, Glasgow, Liverpool, Cardiff, Manchester, you know, all these northern cities, yeah. the huge majority of Irish people just went into the slums there and very often just disappeared. Now, if they had no skill, there was nothing they could do, really, but just beg in the streets, perhaps prostitution, you know, uh, try to get some work in people's houses, looking after the, the children or washing the dishes or whatever. If you were skilled, there was lots of work uh, in Victorian England and the great building of railways and bridges and roads and things like that, which they did so well. And that immigration to Britain really continued, as you know, in our lifetime in the 30s, well, not oh, yeah. quite in the 30s, but certainly in the 50s and the 60s. But just going back, the great story really is, and I'm going to try and follow it up in the next few weeks, some of this, the emigrants, some of their stories, what happened to them? I think in America, they probably had a better chance. And you were telling me, you, you we mentioned James Hack Took some uh, weeks ago, the great yeah. Quaker. I mean, the Quakers work in, you know, West Connemara, Mayo and Ackham were extraordinary. They really was extraordinary. This man took it upon himself to go to America and Canada first to spy out what kind of work would be given to these Irish immigrants if they arrived? What kind of accommodation? What can we do to make their settlement there worthwhile? And uh, he came back. And uh, even though it was unpopular, the Catholic Church said this was a terrible thing to do, to take Catholic people away and send them off to God knows where. But Tuke persevered. And, and I'll try and tell his story because it's very, very interesting. In fact, he assisted more, the Quakers assisted more than 9,000 people 
from Newport, yeah. Clifton, Belmullet, and the west of Ireland to settle yes. in America and Canada. It cost yes. the Quakers £44,000 in those days to, to do this. And he yes, would have continued, only, I'm afraid, popular opinion. Parnell included, interestingly, was against this subsidised immigration. But yeah. there are great stories there, Tom. Um, yes, I have to recommend a book to you, Ronnie. It's called Surplus People. Oh, by a man called Reese, and it's it's about people from the other side of the country, from South Leinster, <clears throat> and it's a similar story except it was the landlord uh, who assisted a, a lot of his tenants. Now it suited him to clear out a lot of his holdings uh, of tenants, but he paid for passage for a couple of thousand. I can't remember the numbers now exactly of people to go to Gross Eel in Canada. Uh, and furthermore, he lined up jobs for them as well. But of course, the conditions they traveled under were appalling. And uh, so by the time they got there, a number had died en route. A lot of the people were very ill. They were quarantined in Gross Eel. And by the time they got onto the mainland in Canada, they were so weak and debilitated that they were really they found it, they weren't able physically able to work in the jobs they were offered and so their money ran out very quickly so they were starting from the ground level up literally they were the bottom rung yeah. of society and as you say the fact that they survived and now that there are <clears throat> descendants of those people coming back to ireland it's quite wonderful and remarkable yeah. really but um, surplus Surplus People is the name yes. of the book. That's very good. Thank you. I've taken a note of it, actually. Um, a lot of landlords did that here, too. And they were quite happy to rid their land of these tenants that couldn't pay the rent, had a terrible time in the famine, if there was any left of them. And don't forget, there was disease as well. And yeah. there was an actual physical problem in the workhouses because during this period, the, the period of the Great Famine, 1845 to 1852, the, the, the workhouses were jammed, packed. The hospitals were jammed, packed. The convents, the monasteries, any form of, you know, shelter at all was jammed, packed. They had a real problem. And the social services that existed at the time were a joke, totally inadequate to, to try to cope with this problem. So the work of the, um, of, of, of Took and the uh, Anglican community indeed, who opened up kitchens, who began to serve food, uh, was really invaluable. And, uh, you know, they began to show people there is a way out of this. You, you don't have to stay here and die. There is another chance. And although that was frowned upon by the Catholic Church, as I say, nevertheless, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people queuing up at any Quaker site to be put on their list for emigration. Oh, yeah. So anyway, look, I thank you for that book. I'll try and get it. I'll try a, a well-known shop called Kenny's here in Galway. And oh, it's a very good place, actually. <laughs> good man, I know it is. And uh, I, I have already some of my own stuff, which I'm plowing through, and I'm yeah. just, my jaw dropped. My jaw has dropped. Yes. Yeah. The, this extraordinary thing that happened uh, 
all those years ago. So anyway, Tom, that's great. I think we can leave it at that. We're looking forward to that, right? Okay. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the weekend's game. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Uh, okay. Lovely, lovely to talk. Take care. See you next week. God bless. Indeed. Bye bye. <laughs>